Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Waldbaugh. I hope everyone out there is staying safe and healthy. The last several episodes have been dedicated to specifics of the COVID crisis, things that we're doing, things to keep in mind, conversation generators. And now we want to start mixing in some regular episodes uh, that will be non-COVID related. Now, I do want to say one thing that I think people may find useful, and we'll put this in the show notes, but I got an email from a couple of anesthesia docs in Sydney, Australia, who have put together a really neat website with a bunch of cognitive aids that are available to try to help folks who want to use these things, and they're totally free. Their website even offers, if you want to contact them, that they'll help you customize the cognitive aids for your own institution. And also, that is free of charge. So this is just a neat thing to check out. The COVID-related cognitive aids are great and really, I think, will help you think through some of the scenarios that might come up in your own care of COVID patients. And as I said, if you're interested and you want to tailor these to your own scenarios, you can contact them and they will do that. So I'll put the website in the show notes. But I thought this was neat, especially because they're offering it free of charge and just wanted to put that out there for folks who might be interested. The website is rnsascar.com. That's R like Rick, N like Nancy, S like Sam, A like Apple, S like Sam, C like Charlie, A like Apple, R like Roger, rnsascar.com. And that'll be in the show notes as well. All right, back to our topic for today. And I have back with me today a very exciting guest, Dr. David Mintz who listeners may remember has been on the show before. And what we're doing today is actually a follow-up to episode 113, which we did a while back. That was on elective aneurysm clipping, the anesthesia for elective aneurysm clipping surgery. And today we're now going to follow up by talking about 
ruptured aneurysms and how those should be managed in the operating room. Dr. Mintz, of course, is an associate professor of anesthesiology and the head of neuroanesthesia here at Johns Hopkins. All right, let's jump right in. Dr. Mintz, thank you for coming back on the show. And thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So as I said, we talked before about elective aneurysm surgery, and today we're going to talk about emergent or urgent surgery for a ruptured aneurysm. But let's just review. Remind the audience, when we say aneurysm, what are we talking about? What is an aneurysm? And uh, you know, when, how are they discovered, either when you're going to be discovered to have elective surgery or if it's discovered in this setting? So um, the aneurysm is essentially the same entity, whether it's discovered via rupture, which creates a need for urgent management, or whether it's discovered via some other mechanism, which typically is patients who present with some mild symptoms like a headache or some odd neurologic findings, and they're imaged and worked up, or whether it's found incidentally, as the majority of aneurysms are. Um, an aneurysm is a weakness in the wall of a cerebral vessel, which causes a abnormal uh, morphology and outpouching of that vessel. Um, and if you're familiar with the physics involved, you'll recognize that the wall of a vessel that's been distended is weak. And as it sees blood pressure over time, there is an increasing chance, particularly the larger it is, um, of rupture. And so the best thing in the world is when we catch these patients before they have a rupture um, because we're taking a, uh, a potentially life-ending or highly life-threatening disease and managing it in such a way that it can have zero consequences for the patient's life. The slightly less fantastic way to figure these things out is in the setting of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, so patients typically will present to an emergency room. They'll complain of the worst headache of my life. Um, they'll complain of neurologic changes. Uh, or they may be anywhere from that fairly mild spectrum to they may be completely obtunded and posturing and without exam whatsoever. Um, outside of the scope of this particular podcast is a discussion of subarachnoid hemorrhage as an entity um, that's managed primarily in the neurocritical care setting, uh, although there are times when patients are brought to the operating room for decompression. Um, and issues there involve the risk of rebleeding vasospasm, which is a, an unfortunate complication that claims a large number of patients um, who have this problem, hydrocephalus, and also seizures, which are a, another unfortunate complication that's common in subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay. So we're talking about an entity that is often found incidentally. So like you said, someone may have a head scan for something else, or they have a headache that is not the worst headache of their life, but just a headache or something going on. They go get a scan. They're found to have a non-ruptured aneurysm. But the classic, you know, spectrum that you mentioned from being uh, in, the, in the emergency room with the worst headache of your life, maybe with some neurological symptoms, all the way up to being comatose uh, would be from a ruptured, more likely a ruptured aneurysm. And in that setting, uh, it's probably the subarachnoid hemorrhage that's causing the symptoms. All right, so now this patient has come through the emergency room. They are relatively urgently, I assume, maybe emergently scheduled for surgery. So that's one of the first points uh, that we should talk about in these podcasts because as with any emergency case, there are, the question is always how do we balance the need for emergency surgery with any other comorbidities that might pose a risk to the patient? And so... The 
perspective that your surgical colleagues will take is that the longer that you wait to fix this entity, the longer that you wait to protect the ruptured and presumably tamponaded aneurysm, the higher the risk is cumulative to the patient that they'll have a re-rupture. Re-ruptures are almost invariably an unmanageable disaster. Um, however, that having been said, the patient with a ruptured aneurysm is not actively bleeding, almost by definition. Otherwise, they would be continuing to decline neurologically very quickly. So this is a patient who is stably unstable. And as such, you have to take a bigger picture look at the patient and ask yourself, is there anything that is urgently needed to be optimized in this patient before they would go back for this surgery on which there is time pressure, um, but not crash into the room, I'm bleeding out of my aorta type of time pressure. Right. And, and it seems so, to me like one major thing that would fit under that would be a patient who is an actively anticoagulated. You would want to probably reverse that anticoagulation any way you can, whether that's giving protamine if they're on heparin, and that, that would be someone in the hospital, obviously, whether it's someone on a um, oral anticoagulant that, uh, you know, you can use one of these new reversal agents for, uh, but trying the best you can. And I guess if you don't have a reversal agent giving activated um, prothrombin uh, concentrate, uh, activated PPCs, um, or something, uh, I said PPCs, I meant PCCs, um, but something uh, to try to get them so that they will not be prone to bleed more. Absolutely. And so I think when you evaluate these patients preoperatively, the question in the back of your mind is, is there anything that can and should be optimized right now that would pose a greater threat to this patient? Um, for instance, what if your patient is also in DKA because they're a type 1 diabetic and this has thrown them well off their course? Probably it would be reasonable to at least bring that under some level of control before crashing back into an OR. Um, and the, you know, aneurysm rupture patients can have every type of pathology that patients without that problem can have. Um, so in terms of preoperative evaluation, some very key points to keep an eye on that go beyond perhaps your usual preop evaluation for an emergency case, the mental status and the neurologic exam for the patient. Um, there are a number of reasons that you want to pay attention to this. One is it may determine the course of your anesthetic. So a patient who is fully obtunded, there's probably no likelihood that you're going to be able to emerge that patient afterwards, and thus you should plan around that thought and plan on how you're going to transfer this patient safely to ICU care, uh, presumably while still sedated. A patient who has a relatively intact neurologic exam, you want to be very mindful that there's a compelling need to regain that level of neurologic function after your anesthetic very quickly, because if you can't, then your ability to help your surgeons determine their next set of choices is much, much reduced. Um, and that's one of your great responsibilities for the case. Um, intertwined with that issue is if you have a patient with very poor mental status and a disrupted neurologic exam, that's part of a picture of somebody with elevated ICP, and that may change your thinking and your management. You certainly wouldn't want that patient to be hypoventilated for any period of time. It might change your approach to the airway. You might think carefully before you position the patient and take them from a head up to a head down uh, situation. Um, in addition to the, um, the neurologic exam, another special note that's worth making is related to EKG specifically. 
So it's very common for patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage to manifest ST depressions, altered T waves, big U and R waves, and long QTCs. And that's a, a recognized complication of subarachnoid hemorrhage. This is a complicating factor for us in a lot of cases because your instinct when you see a patient with these types of problems, particularly when you see somebody with ST depressions, is to worry about a primary cardiac problem that perhaps might need to be fixed even before uh, aneurysm clipping. We don't really know why this happens. There's one school of thought that says this is hypothalamic stimulation um, and another one that it's a catecholamine surge. Um, ultimately, while these things should be recognized, seen as a baseline state and taken into account, um, they should not be seen as a reason to delay either coiling or clipping of a ruptured aneurysm um, because they're, even if it is, let's say you're, you're having a problem and you wanted to manage what you thought was, you know, was an MI, well, what would you do? Um, if you thought that it was an ST elevation MI, you'd take them to cath lab. That's not an option for these patients. Um, if you thought that it was an ST depression MI, you would do things that you would still continue to do in the OR, keep the heart rate low, oxygenate the patient, try to reduce myocardial work. But not put them on heparin. But not put them on heparin. Please don't put these patients on heparin. No aspirin, no heparin. No aspirin, no heparin. Um, okay, so I think that's a great point. Um, and as always, we need to ask ourselves when we're thinking about cardiac interventions, uh, you know, if I did this intervention or got this further workup, would it change my management? And if the answer is no, then probably not worth doing. So, um, all right, you mentioned that we want to make sure we pay close attention to the baseline mental status neuro exam, that we want to look at the EKG and know that there may be these classic changes. I remember being told as a med student, T's to the knees, big inverted T waves. Of course, that's not always present, and there may be others that you mentioned, but good to remember that it can affect the EKG. Um, and then, are we, does it matter if we think they're going to do clipping versus coiling in terms of how we prepare? So from the outset, it matters in the sense that your, the course of your day is going to be very different. Um, the anesthetic choices that you make um, are going to be somewhat different, but ultimately your, your goals are going to be fairly similar. You want to prevent re-rupture of the aneurysm. You want to minimize hypoperfusion of the brain. Um, and you want to get an emergence with a return to whatever neurologic function was there previously, if there was any. Um, and you want to manage high ICP if indeed that's something that you believe is being manifest. The decision whether to clip or coil is not one that you'll make and not one that you'll have any particular input into. Um, typically, that decision is made before you see the patient or at least the discussion is ongoing. Um, and be prepared in the course of your career, depending on how you work and who you work with, for a wide range of different outcomes, um, and you should be you should be able to manage patients in both settings. Um, so, on average, patients are coiled more frequently if the vessels are um, deeper, less superficial, which allows easier access via catheter, but more difficult access via open surgery. There are certain morphologies of aneurysms that lend themselves better to coiling. Um, and also patients who are considered more medically sick are more frequently considered for coiling because the thought is that it's a less stressful procedure overall and that the recovery is, is relatively fast. Um, 
Other factors that can come into play are the nature of the workforce at your center. There are some places that don't have much coverage from neurosurgery to do open aneurysm clippings, but do have good interventional radiology. Um, there are some places where neurosurgeons who like to clip aneurysm predominate. Ultimately, in terms of patient outcome, the best data that we have now do suggest that patients who are young will definitely fare better from clipping because clips seem to work permanently, and the coiling strategies, even the best ones, have not been proven to last uh, for many, many years. Okay. Well, that's an important point. So obviously, as you said, probably not a whole lot of decision-making on the anesthesiologist part, but good to think about it and obviously good to know what the procedure is. And I imagine that if you start off with a plan for coiling and things go poorly, you may end up converting to an open uh, clipping procedure. Absolutely. And it's essential to have an OR prepared and ready to go. This typically happens on a call setting and a, an OR setup for trauma is, is appropriate for that. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's important to recognize both from a staffing consideration and from a setup consideration that any ruptured aneurysm that's in an IR suite could wind up being in an OR. Yeah, great. All right. So regardless, we're going forward with a procedure. And what's your case plan? What do you want to see done? So I think a universal uh, feature of these cases is a pre-induction A-line. And when you ask yourself what the goals of your case are, maintaining blood pressure between a tight range is really paramount. Because on the one hand, the if you let the wall pressure on the tamponaded aneurysm increase over a certain amount, it will re-rupture, and that may be game over. Um, on the other hand, most of these patients have some degree of elevated ICP, and as you all know, cerebral perfusion pressure equals MAP minus ICP, so the higher ICP you have, the, the greater the likelihood that you'll trend towards watershed infarcts. Um, and those, those things are difficult to balance. The question people always ask is, well, how do we know where to set our blood pressure? What blood pressure is too high for my patient right now, right in front of me? The horrifying answer is we don't know. No one can tell you exactly what pressure that aneurysm is going to re-rupture at. Um, limits and guidelines that people typically talk about, on average, you'll see in textbooks quoted that you should try to keep your systolic blood pressures at 120 or below, certainly below 140, um, and that you should attempt to keep your maps somewhere in the range of at least above 65 or 70. But recognize that those numbers are, are simply guidelines that are elaborated based on experience and that they are not, they're not necessarily a reflection of what's happening inside your patient. Do we ever use monitors like NEARS or cerebral oximetry to try to guide uh, blood pressure management during these cases? Unfortunately, thus far, there hasn't been a lot of success in converting those new technologies into something that's practically usable in the OR and that can guide our management. I'm certainly hopeful that in the future we'll have some measure of cerebral tissue oxygenation because that's what you'd really like to know is what map is it that is sufficient to maintain oxygenation in my patient today, right now, with my surgeon tugging on the brain uh, or with a clip on a major vessel. But to date, that, that remains outside of our standard of care. Um, but stay tuned, folks. A lot of people working on that. Great. We'll be interesting to see what comes of that. All right. So you've got your pre-induction A-line. What other access do you want? 
So you definitely need reliable and redundant access. Um, I would urge you for all of your neurosurgery cases to have redundant access because repositioning of patients um, and IVs that are placed remotely or even tucked away are the norm, and thus the likelihood that any IV will survive the whole case is probably less than if you have a supine patient in which you have control over all the limbs. Um, this is not a case to be going into wondering whether your IVs work or not. You may have to adjust the blood pressure on a minute-to-minute basis with um, pressors uh, or vasodilators. You need to know for 100% certainty that they're going to work every time. Uh, and if you begin to have questions about an IV intraoperatively, place another one and use the one that you have that you know is working. And would you have a low threshold to place a central line if you were kind of not able to get good access or a little unsure about your access? I have a preference against using central lines in neurologic cases because it leaves us with bad options. So we prefer not to use necklines because they can reduce venous drainage, which can have um, unfortunate effects on the surgical fields. You, of course, could put a line in the chest, and that might be an acceptable alternative. Um, but then if you, if you chose that moment to, uh, to hit something you didn't mean to in the chest, that would be a problem. And you're referring to a subclavian line yeah. where you have a high, higher risk of pneumothorax or, you know. And also density. which most of us are less practiced at because it's not a routine line. Yep. A femoral line, of course, is safer but runs the risk of postoperative infection. These patients typically have long ICU courses. Um, and so my preference in general would be to stay away from central lines. But that having been said, I would absolutely place a central line in a patient in whom I could not get access that I was convinced was reliable. But this is a great opportunity to use your IV ultrasounds and, and so forth. You don't necessarily have to have giant IVs for these cases. While there's a potential for substantial blood loss, it's not equivalent to doing a liver resection mm-hmm. or a big trauma. These are not large vessels, um, and we're not talking about exposing large bleeding areas. And thus, I'm more concerned about having IVs that are that are going to work than I am about having multiple large bore IVs. Makes sense to me. All right. So we talked a little before about how important it is to stay within narrow bounds of blood pressure, not too high, not too low, whatever you decide that is. What are you going to use to make that possible in terms of pressors and vasodilators? So everybody has their own favorites. Um, And I think one of the really important things for you to do during your training is to figure that question out for yourself based on your experiences with patients, how how drugs are used where you train. Um, I'll tell you my personal preference is to make a heavy use of phenylephrine as my uh, presser of choice. Um, I find very few circumstances where phenylephrine is insufficient for me. Uh, If it were insufficient, I might move to levofed, but that's usually not my first choice. I find it to be less titratable. Um, And my preferential approach to vasodilators is to use a combination of nicardipine given as a bolus dose and esmolol. Uh, I like that combination because if I think I can bring the blood pressure down effectively because the heart rate is high, then I use esmolol. If I think that the heart rate is low and I still want to bring the blood pressure down, nicardipine is a good alternative. Um, Nicardipine is also typically what antihypertensive therapy is going to be used in a neurocritical care setting. Um, Both of those, all three of those drugs are drugs that are pretty short acting. So you may make a mistake and not pay for it for quite as long. Um, Other things that are commonly used, nitroglycerin is very commonly used. um, And if that's what you're comfortable with, then that's what you should use. Um, But 
ultimately, I think most people will approach these cases with an infusion of some presser prepared and ready to go, several sticks of presser in their hand or easily at hand and keep replenishing your supply. Um, on average, people don't necessarily have the vasodilators as infusions. Um, I use remifentanil to a certain extent in these cases, which I'm choosing primarily to avoid giving too much opiates, and I want something that'll wear off quickly, but in a pinch it can serve a little bit uh, to bring blood pressure down. Um, so again, these choices are all, they're all determined by your scope of practice, but you need to walk into the room with all the drugs prepared and ready to go and with some redundancy. Um, I won't go in detail into the management of the anesthetic during clipping and temporary clipping and so forth. If you want to refer to the other podcast, um, you'll certainly recognize the need to, to rapidly change the blood pressure in that setting. Great. So uh, just for international listeners who don't have the same um, trade names, Levofed is norepinephrine, which uh, you mentioned as your kind of second line if phenylephrine isn't working for you. I'm sure there are people who start with norepinephrine. Uh, so you're pushing nicardipine and or esmolol, depending on the situation, like you said. Give us a general dose range. When you, when you give an initial push of nicardipine, how much are you pushing? So I typically will draw it up so that it's 125 mics per cc. Um, and what I perceive a, a dose in the range of 100 mics as being a very small dose that isn't likely to have much effect on people. I'd perceive a dose that's 200 to 300 as having a modest effect and a dose of 500 as having a rapid, profound effect. Okay. And how about your esmolol dosing? Um, anywhere from 10 to 50 at a time. People's response to beta blockers seems to be so variable and you have to feel it out. Um, but I usually start with 10 to 20 and go up quickly. I like to think a little bit logarithmically in terms of these drugs. If you get very little effect at a low dose, you may need to escalate fairly quickly, especially if you need a rapid response. Great. All right. So now we've got the plan. Your part of your plan is a pre-induction A-line, good redundant IV access, and of course, having set up the drips and or presser uh, and or hand bolus medications that you're going to have. Now you've got to induce and place an airway in this patient, which I imagine is a very risky time. So how are you going to manage the induction and airway? So the, I think the two keys to airway are to give yourself, to take your time when you can, and to give yourself the opportunity to understand how your airway management approach is going to affect the blood pressure. The real risk here is that you will have a hypertensive reaction to airway management that will cause a rupture, which is something you can't take back. Um, I think you should also over-prepare in terms of technique. This isn't the patient to walk in the room and say, I think I can get this guy with direct laryngoscopy. If you're not 100% convinced, then I would suggest you move up to whatever your next airway management tool is, whether that's a video laryngoscope or a fiber optic. Um, I would suggest having backup to help you with these patients as this is not the patient that you want to struggle with the airway. This is not the patient that you want to hypoventilate either while you struggle with the airway. Um, so as a general rule, I advocate for, and you'll see written up in textbooks, the approach of uh, what's called test laryngoscopy. So once you've induced the patient and you are happy that you're at some hemodynamic steady state and that you can mass ventilate, assuming that's part of your plan, um, that you instrument the airway either with your video laryngoscope or your conventional laryngoscope, 
and then get a view of the vocal cords and then remove the laryngoscope. Give yourself a little time. They say 30 seconds to a minute. Watch the blood pressure. Watch the heart rate. And ask yourself, did I give enough medication to prevent the hypertensive response? Because passing the tube by the cords is typically even more stimulating than the laryngoscopy itself. So if you didn't give enough to handle the laryngoscopy, then you certainly didn't give enough to handle the tube. And that gives you a chance to figure that out and try to deal with it preemptively rather than seeing a terrible you know, 180 over 100 number and scrambling to do something about it. Um, this is particularly important if you're by yourself and you don't have a second operator who's pushing drugs for you. Um, but I would advocate it in, in basically all circumstances. Great. So you want to avoid hypotension. You want to avoid hypertension and tachycardia. So do you have a go-to induction medication? Do you use propofol in these patients, or do you prefer something else like Atomidate? Um, I generally use propofol in these patients uh, along with some fentanyl and lidocaine, not that dissimilar from any induction that you do. Um, and I typically layer on top of that um, an antihypertensive medication, usually a solid dose of esmolol and or nicardipine based on my perception of how the patient is going to react. Um, it's important to keep in mind, of course, where people's mental status is. If you have a patient who's abtunded, you don't need large doses of propofol, and you may say, oh, I can induce this guy with 50 of propofol. That may be true, but then you need to give a lot more nicardipine and or esmolol or fentanyl, whatever it is you choose, um, because while their mind may not be working, um, their their circulatory system may be working just fine. Right. So they may be uh, unconscious but still able to mount a, a sympathetic response. Correct. What about succinylcholine? Uh, you know, we're all taught that succinylcholine can increase ICP. Would you avoid it in these patients? So in my own practice, I don't. Um, I would say that the data suggests that if a precurizing dose is given, that there's no appreciable rise in ICP. Um, that having been said, as much as I don't go out of my way to avoid succinylcholine in patients with elevated ICP, I would ask yourself whether there's any benefit to succinylcholine. So are you really going to get the patient ventilating spontaneously again? The answer in most of these patients is probably no. Um, are you really going to need neuromonitoring that would involve motors immediately after you push the drug, the answer is almost invariably going to be, going to be no. Um, these are patients who you're going to want to be densely paralyzed throughout the surgery, so I think it's well within reason to give very large doses of rock or VEC or whatever it is you choose, um, simply because you're committing to paralysis from that point onward until the clips are on. And, of course, in the age of Sugambidex, if we did struggle with the airway, Absolutely. we could reverse it almost or maybe even faster Sugambidex than Sugambidex means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> That's right. So uh, we can use large doses of rock, as you said. If we have to reverse it, we can. You mentioned that if you are going to use sucks, you would use a defasciculating dose. And so in case people don't know, you, most people, I think, would think of that as giving a, maybe 5 to 10 milligrams of rocuronium or maybe 1 to 2 milligrams at most of vecuronium about a few minutes. I don't know if you have it in your head exactly, maybe 3 minutes or so, 3 to 5 minutes. I give it when I'm giving my other pre-medications, yeah. and that usually seems to work out fine. Great. So you're giving it a few minutes before you give the succinylcholine, which will reduce or eliminate the fasciculations and then potentially also reduce or eliminate the rise in ICP. 
and which you should note also will increase the required dose of succinylcholine. So keep that in mind if you're taking that approach. Great. All right. So we are going to be very careful. We're going to uh, use whatever agent you prefer, as you said, propofol with some esmolol and or nicardipine. Um, and of course, having your pressors ready in case blood pressure drops too low, maybe doing a test uh, laryngoscopy, as you said. Um, once you have the airway secure, uh, you now are going to go through the case. Now, we talked a lot about intraoperative management of, of the elective case. Are there any major differences in this, the ruptured aneurysm case? I think, from my eyes, the only principal difference is the patient who comes in already uptunded and without a neurologic exam and with, a, with, with definite evidence of critically high ICPs. Um, I personally favor for most of my neuroanesthetics something akin to the old nitrous narcotic approach with a little bit of volatile agent thrown in. However, in that subset of patients in whom I have no hope or plan of reestablishing an exam, um, I'll typically choose a propofol-based ativa anesthetic with the thought that that may have some beneficial effects in managing the ICP um, and that that also is what we would transition to in ICU care. Um, also in that patient, remember, they don't need a lot of anesthetic from a cognitive perspective, but do be mindful that from a hemodynamic perspective, their, you know, their heart and their circulatory system, and their sympathetic nervous system are still presumably intact. Now I, and please correct me, but I seem to remember nitrous as being taught as a less than ideal um, anesthetic for elevated ICP because I think it can raise, uh, increase intracranial blood flow and therefore potentially increase ICP. Is that, but you use it, so it must be. I do. And so while, while there are good theoretical concerns that, that might think, might lead you to think that you wouldn't choose nitrous as an anesthetic, the practical data on it are that it doesn't seem to actually elevate ICP meaningfully in in patients in these settings, um, in patients in an operating room setting. And thus, you know, I consider its benefits in terms of it being the most rapidly reversible agent that we have in our armamentarium to outweigh those potential problems. Obviously, the caveats for nitrous are the same as they are always. You don't want to use it anywhere where you might have air trapped in a closed space. Um, and um, there are certain patients who may not tolerate it because of their lung function. But those things left aside, it's still a mainstay of my ruptured aneurysm practice as long as I'm trying to get back to an exam. Great. All right. So uh, with that uh, or those caveats in mind, if people want details on management of aneurysm surgery intraoperatively, they can go back to episode 113 where we talked about um, elective aneurysm clipping. Okay, so are there any uh, things that sort of are must-know, this could happen, and if so, when it happens, do this? Anything we want to either revisit or mention here? I think something that you should keep in your mind when you're doing the ruptured aneurysm case is if you're in a neuroradiology setting, the likelihood of having to convert to an open procedure is higher. Um, if you're already in an OR setting, the likelihood of having an intraoperative re-rupture is much higher than it is for an aneurysm which is is unruptured at the time of presentation. And, you know, as much as you should be prepared for that eventuality always, um, I think it should just, it should raise one extra level of vigilance in your mind uh, in terms of the need to be thoughtful about that. Um, it's also notable, I think, in most of these cases, it's a, there's a much higher propensity on the part of many surgeons to do temporary clipping. And so you should certainly, 
adjust your thinking to the possibility that they will most likely take that approach and that you need to be prepared to raise the blood pressure during that period of time in order to maintain cerebral perfusion. And so that's kind of, is that like a test? They're, they're doing a temporary clip on a vessel. They want to see what perfusion looks like when that vessel is clipped to decide whether to put a permanent clip on? No. So they're actually putting a temporary clip on to occlude flow to the vessel so that they can instrument and even sometimes dissect a little more around it without the risk of rupturing an aneurysm that's full of blood. The the loss or the the harm that's potentially done is you're creating a stroke downstream of that temporary clip. Um, but the benefit is that if the aneurysm is ruptured incidentally, it doesn't create a catastrophe. Interesting. Okay. So temporary clip allows them to get better access, see a little better, make some uh, more dissection without having a lot of bleeding. But you then are transforming your anesthetic from keep very tight control, don't go too high, to need to go high to try to perfuse around that clip. To try to save some brain. Yep. Which is the name of the game. That's the name of the game. All right. Anything else for intraoperative management? No, I don't think so. All right. So what about postoperatively? These patients, I assume, are all going to the ICU. Certainly 100% of them should receive ICU-level care, regardless of what the circumstance is coming in. Um, be prepared for a high likelihood that your neurosurgical team, regardless of circumstance, may want to do a scan afterwards and just have, think about the possibility that you want to arrange your patients so that that's easy to do and safe. Um, and this is one of these cases where it's really important to give great sign out to our ICU colleagues and leave them with a clear impression of what the patient looked like beforehand. You know, you you will have a good impression of that um, because you will have been the last person to interview the patient before they were anesthetized. And that's, that's, that's great information to pass on person to person. Um, be thoughtful about making sure that your ICU colleagues are left with good access um, and that if you leave the patient intubated that, you know, you have, you are transporting them in such a way that you're going to leave them with the tube that's in the right place. Um, these are terrible patients to reintubate. Um, while uh, that's always a bad circumstance, this adds another layer of complexity to it. Great. That all makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, more and more we're seeing specialized neurointensivists taking care of these patients, though that is probably more common at a big academic center and and probably less so um, in community ICUs and other places. And so, you know, you want, as you say, make their job as easy as possible and uh, tell them what you know. All right. I think we've covered a lot of great stuff as a companion to our prior episode. Any last things to add, Dave, before we move to random recommendations? I think that's pretty much it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Let's now turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. Dave, do you have something you would recommend to the audience? Sure, I do. So last month, I reread my favorite pop history book. Um, It is a work by Barbara Tuckman, who wrote a series of, of interesting histories crossing different time periods. It's called The Guns of August. Um, the Guns of August chronicles the months and days leading up to the outbreak of the First World War. And in the course of human history, this is, this is really one of the stupidest things that's ever happened. Um, and she takes a very authoritative approach in the sense that it's a highly researched and referenced book but it's very readable. And what she's really asking is a different question than a lot of classic history texts ask, which is she's asking, what were, what were people thinking when they let their relationships with each other deteriorate to the point where they engulfed the world 
in a cataclysm that really went on for 20 years or 100 years, depending on what your perspective on this is historically. Um, it's a small book. You can probably, if you're a fast reader, you can read it in a week or two. Um, and it's it's very much a page turner uh, in the sense that uh, most history books may not appeal to you, even those who are not keen on history may find this one to be exciting. Nice. That's awesome. I will check it out and we'll put a link uh, in the show notes. My recommendation, um, so I've always enjoyed playing cornhole just kind of casually. I'm not very good. Uh, but some friends were putting together a tournament a couple weeks ago and invited me to come. So I figured, okay, I'll come, even though I, I know I won't have any chance. And sure enough, I did not have any chance of winning that tournament. But it was fun to play. And what I learned, and folks may already know this, I did not know that true cornhole players have beanbags that are actually double-sided. One side is stickier and the other side is slicker. And so it adds this whole element of strategy where if you are trying to slide a bag up the ramp into the hole, you would obviously use the sliding side. Or if you already have one and you want to try to bump it in, if you're trying to just force your own bag farther up, you would do that. On the other hand, if someone has blocked the ramp up to the hole with their bag, then you would maybe flip it over and try to get it to just land and stick uh, near or obviously preferably in the hole. But it was this whole added thing that I thought was really interesting and fun. So cornhole in general, tons of fun. If you haven't played, check it out. And if you can get your hands on some double-sided bags, adds even more fun to it. So check that out. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. Anytime. All right. That was great. Learned a ton. Those are really complicated cases and important to know how to handle them. If you have a comment, go to the website, ACRAC.com, and let us know what you thought. Others can learn from what you have to say as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, you can make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Huge thank you also to Kimia Kashkuli, our intern, and, of course, to both Dr. Brian Park and April Liu for the outlines they do for the episodes and to Dr. Dennis Kuo for composing the original ACRAC music. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today for the ACRAC podcast and Dr. David Mintz. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret. 
and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.